The Read to Lead Podcast, episode 43. Hey there, I'm Stu Gray from the Stupendous Marriage Show at stupendousmarriage.com. You know, Jeff and I are actually in a mastermind group together, and that means I've got the skinny on Jeff Brown. If you ever want to know, just send me an email. Stu at... Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> hey. That's that's enough. Thank, thank you, Stu. Thank you very much. It's the Read to Lead Podcast with me, Jeff Brown. Work-life imbalance has nothing to do with how much yoga we do. Work-life imbalance is that we feel safe at home, but we don't feel safe at work. In other words, we don't trust that our leaders have our interest in mind. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. I am Jeff, and this is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. This week, we sit down with another successful and inspiring author to talk about his latest book. It's Simon Sinek this time around, author of the book Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. And in today's episode, Simon will share his thoughts on the lies we choose to believe about the safety of a job, the chemicals in our body that all play a role in our positive feelings, the new challenges that technology presents for today's leaders, and a lot more. First, I want to tell you about Blinkist. This is a company I discovered just a few weeks ago. They create thoughtfully composed, human-made business book summaries. If you suffer from information overload and you want an effective way to read more in less time, then you need Blinkist. Now, more than ever, because they've got a special deal just for you as a listener to the Read to Lead podcast. They came to me yesterday and they said, Jeff, we want to offer 20% off on our annual subscription for Read to Lead podcast listeners. So all you need to do is go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. And then when prompted, use the code Read to Lead, all one word, Read to Lead, and you'll save 20% on an annual subscription to Blinkist. Think about the books on your bookshelf that you've yet to finish, or maybe there are even a few you haven't even started yet. And what if each of those books, still calling your name, took just 15 minutes of your time? That's all it takes with Blinkist, 15 minutes to glean the main ideas and key insights. How many of those books, then, could you check off your list? I don't know about you, but that'd be pretty liberating for me. That's why you need Blinkist. Go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist and enter read to lead as your discount code. That's all one word. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist and the discount code read to lead. Described as a visionary thinker with a rare intellect, Simon teaches leaders and organizations how to inspire people. And with a bold goal to help build a world in which the vast majority of people go home every day feeling fulfilled by their work, he is leading a movement to inspire people to do the things that inspire them. A trained ethnographer, he is the author of two books, the global bestseller Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action, and his newest book, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. Fascinated by the leaders and companies that make the greatest impact in their organizations and in the world, those with the capacity to inspire, He's discovered some remarkable patterns about how they think, act, and communicate in the environments in which people operate at their natural best. 
He's devoted his life to sharing his thinking in order to help other leaders and organizations inspire action. He's best known for popularizing the concept of why and for the talk he gave on the subject that became the second most watched talk of all time on TED.com. When I launched the podcast a year ago, back in almost a year ago, back in July, one of my goals uh, at the very outset was to have Simon Sinek on the podcast. And I'm excited to say that that day uh, has finally arrived. Simon, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, I know that prior to the release of your first book, Start With Why, you had a chance to, to talk on the topic at great length and get uh, feedback and share ideas and, and, and really flesh a lot of that out. And then, you know, like, a, like an artist who has their whole life to write their first album has 18 months to two years to write their second. And so I want to ask, with the huge success enjoyed by Start With Why, how does one avoid the sophomore slump, if you will? Or do you even concern yourself with issues like that when it came to writing Leaders Eat Last? So, if you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. You know, I spent I spent a lifetime, you know, sort of working up to the first book, and uh, it was born out of you know a personal challenge that I had to overcome, and it was the solution I found for myself that 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 was the birth of the idea. It was never an academic or commercial exercise. And then, sort of, when you have that second opportunity, you're told, you know, by your publisher, what do you, you know, or asked, what do you have next? Um, the, the good news is, is I never felt a pressure. To write, to I never, I, I didn't feel a pressure. And I didn't want to write anything unless I had something worth writing about. Mm. You know, I had already accepted um, that I may just have, have just write one book for my life. That's okay, you know. Yeah. Um, the, the I had no requirement that I write another one. They just had an option that I write another one if I write another one. And so and so there was no. I didn't feel any force. And so in my own education, and I consider myself a student of leadership. I myself found myself uh, not only uh, struggling with issues of trust and cooperation and where they come from, but meeting people who, who I saw who didn't trust each other and meeting people I saw who did trust each other in remarkable ways and became fascinated with, with how that happens. Again, it's somewhat semi-autobiographical. And, so, um, and, and once that investigation began, uh, to your point about the sophomore slump, I, I again, uh, I had already accepted the fact that any work that I do, I have to start with why, probably won't be a successful start with why. You know, the success of start with why was an accident. So I can't make something more successful on purpose. You know? <laughs> so, so those pressures, those pressures really, I, didn't, I, I must admit, I didn't feel them. The, the biggest pressure I, I felt was I was learning so much remarkable, remarkable stuff that was changing my perspective on the world. The pressure I felt was, would I be able to capture that in a manner that would have the same impact on other people's lives? And so that's that's what produced leaders eat last. In preparing for book number two and and research and such, what did your time, Simon, studying our military specifically teach you about leadership? So I spend a lot of time with them, and I write about them quite considerably in Leaders Eat Last. Um, not because um, they have a different form of leadership; it's just that the lessons of leadership, the the the, the foundational lessons of leadership, are more exaggerated because they deal in matters of life and death. So where things like trust and cooperation for us may be luxuries or nice ideas or things to talk about in an interview, um, for them they're an absolute necessity because absent trust and cooperation, people will die. Um, and so if you have something that is required, if trust and cooperation are a necessity, how, how do you go about creating, um, creating them in an organization? 
Um, and so I learned a lot of lessons about where trust and cooperation come from from the military, and they are absolutely transferable to any group or organization. Like I said, the lessons are just exaggerated um, in, in their line of business. Um, and, and basically it all boils down to um, how we feel um, amongst each other and, and, and what we feel the responsibility of leadership is. True leaders are responsible for the people in their charge. They take responsibility for their lives. Um, too many of our leaders in our modern organizations feel that their job is, is the you know, to, to take responsibility for the numbers or the performance of the organization. Mm. And, and this is the furthest thing from the truth. The reality is a leader's job is to look after the people, and the people's job is then to look after the numbers in the organization. Back in uh, episode 30, we're at episode 43 now, uh, we chatted with uh, Liz Weissman, the book Multipliers. And, and one of the takeaways for me from that conversation with Liz, Simon, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this because I know you delve into this as well, is this approach to leadership that reasons that uh, yeah, I'm supposed to have all the answers as a leader, or I can't have someone who reports to me who's, who's smarter than I am. What, what problem does that mentality create for, for organizations in your view? Well, the, the, it's a complete fallacy that, that the person at the top has to have all the answers. Um, what would be the point of having people then? Are they just, are they just robots, automatons, you know, there to execute on all the brilliant ideas and correct answers that the leader has? No, of course not. Of course not. The more, the more people involved uh, uh, who offer an, a, a different perspective, then the more perspectives you will have, the more solutions that become available. Um, great leaders um, know that they don't know everything. And great leaders are very open to the ideas of others. What their responsibility is is to set the course, in other words, articulate a clear vision that we're working towards, which is different than a big goal, and to give the people the resources and protect, protect the people. But yes, this idea that my credibility as a leader is tied to my intelligence or my, or my capacity or capability are complete, complete nonsense. I used to believe uh, the lie uh, is the word you use, the lie of the safety that, that a job uh, provided. You know, how safe is it, though, when one person's decision can mean you don't have it anymore? You know, right, the, exactly right. In fact, that happened to me a little less uh, than a year ago, a job I'd held for 14 mm-hmm. years. You say that this myth of job stability may be, though, the least of our worries. Which is ultimately worse, assignment, not having a job at all or, or working every day at a job that we hate? So the statistics and the studies are clear on this, um, which is um, that people who have no job tend to uh, uh, have, or have the same levels of stress or lower levels of stress than people who work in a job they don't like. So think about that. Going to a job you hate or going to a job you don't love is actually more stressful than not having a job at all. And, you know, and, and this is sort of a remarkable thing. And what it starts to inform us is that as human beings, we're social animals. Our, our happiness, our success, our survival, our health depend uh, quite a great deal on how we feel amongst the people with whom we live and, uh, and how we feel amongst the people with whom we work. This is what work-life imbalance is. It has nothing to do with how much yoga we do. <laughs> work-life imbalance is that we feel safe at home, but we don't feel safe at work. In other words, we don't trust that our leaders have our interest in mind. Mm. And when there's this underlying stress, tension, fear, whatever you want to call it, when there's this underlying belief that our leaders would sooner sacrifice us to save the numbers and wouldn't sacrifice the numbers to save us, what that does is it makes us, uh, there's a biological and anthropological reaction to that kind of feeling, which is we become paranoid, we become uh, cynical, we become mistrustful, and we become self-interested. Of course, 
because if we don't trust that someone else will look after us, we have to look after ourselves. Any organization, anybody that feels that, uh, compelled to write a CYA email um, means that they work in an organization where they, they, they don't trust their leaders. <laughs> because why would you invest time and energy to write a CYA email if you, if you, if you didn't fear anybody? Of course you wouldn't, right? Mm. So these, these things are symptoms. And, and think about it. From a leadership perspective, your people are spending time to write emails to cover their own behind <laughs> as opposed to working hard to solve the problems to advance the organization. Well, guess what? That's a leadership problem. That's not the problem with your people. That's the problem with you. Mm. Well, related to that, Simon, can leading a movement to inspire people to do the things that inspire them include not working for a company at all? In other words, do some of us need to resign ourselves to the fact that we won't find that inspiration in a traditional work environment? I'm agnostic as to how people uh, find what inspires them. And, um, and I do not believe for one second that if you work in an organization in which um, you have poor leadership, that the only option is to resign and do your own thing mm. um, or to, to begin that search of trying to find a, an organization that you, know, that you would feel like a good fit, that you would feel valued and valuable. That's not it at all. Um, we all have the responsibility to be the leaders we wish we had. Mm. So you don't have to quit. What you have to do is come to work with a new, a, new, a new commitment. In other words, the commitment isn't to look after myself anymore. The commitment is to look after the people to the left of me and to look after the people to the right of me. That, I, that to go to work committing yourself, in other words, to, this, is the, this is the challenge of leadership. Leadership requires an element of courage and risk because it's really much easier to just keep your head down and not worry about anybody else but yourself. This is why leaders, we call them leaders because they go first. They, they, they accept the risk to put the care of others sometimes before themselves. And so when someone comes to work and changes their perspective and decides that if they're never going to love their job and the leadership makes them feel insecure and they, because you know, every year if the company misses its numbers, there might be layoffs. If I just resign myself to that's the reality, and I'm never going to change that or fix that. <laughs> at least I can make coming to work every day as great as possible for the people with whom I work. Mm. And what starts to happen is the teams come together, they coalesce, they get stronger, the performance gets better. And here's the best thing about that model which is that people react by keeping the leader safe. So here's a true story for you. I know a Marine who, uh, he's an officer who was out in the, he was out and he was deployed. And uh, as is the custom in the Marine Corps, he let his men eat first, just like a parent. Mm. Except on this particular day, when the men were done eating, there was no food left for the officer. The officer went hungry that day. He went back out into the field and all of the men brought him some of their food because that's what happened. When the leader accepts the risk and has the courage to put the well-being of others before themselves, the way human beings react is to look after those who look after us. Excellent. I'm fortunate to have had a, a leader like that in, in my past and the kind of person who you're willing to, to almost take a bullet for. You would do anything for them because of, of, of their insistence on, on putting you and your needs first. Uh, this is a bit of an open-ended question, Simon, so, so feel free to expound on it as much as you like. But I'd love for you to share a bit about your study of our uh, four primary chemicals in our body that, that all play a role in our positive feelings or what you call uh, happy. Yeah, yes. Um, so inside our body is a, is, a, is, an, is a cleverly organized incentive system. So just like in a company, if we want to direct the behavior of the people inside a company, we... Uh, we offer incentives. We offer positive incentives, you know, often financial bonuses for, cer for achieving certain goals, right? So what we're able to do is direct the behavior through incentives. The human body works the same way. Inside our body are a system of chemicals 
that are designed to incentivize us to do things that are in our best interest. If anyone's ever had a feeling of happiness, joy, friendship, love, pride, um, accomplishment, any of these uh, feelings that I generically call happiness are all controlled basically by four chemicals, endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. And it's the, it's the, uh, it's the things that have those chemicals fire off that will direct our behavior. So for example, dopamine is the feeling we get when we find something we're, lo- we're looking for or accomplish something we set out to accomplish. So when it feels good to cross something off your to-do list, when you feel like you won or that you, uh, 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 you sort of achieve something big when you, when you hit a goal or when you actually win a game, that rush of winning the game or crossing the finish line, that's because of dopamine. And dopamine is trying to get us to, you know, find food, do things in our best interest, <laughs> advance, accomplish. That's what it's designed to do. Um, unfortunately, uh, that is the predominant chemical incentive employed when we have a, an individually incentivized performance structure. In other words, if you hit the goal, you get the bonus. And when you hit the goal and you get the bonus, you get a shot of dopamine, which makes you feel good, right? The problem is the feeling doesn't last. Mm. Dopamine is also the feeling you get when you drink, gamble, smoke, do drugs. In other words, you get a hit. That's what happens. And that's why we have to keep doing it over and over and over again to keep getting the hits. Otherwise, we don't feel good. So it doesn't last. And this is why uh, a dopamine, uh, an unbalance of dopamine incentive inside a corporate incentive structure, in other words, only individually um, uh, incentivized behavior, uh, is, can be very, very destructive to the organization itself because we're not incentivizing cooperation. Other chemicals like serotonin and oxytocin reward us for when we do things for others. So when um, someone, uh, if you've ever had somebody do this for you, where you, you come through a toll booth and the guy in front of you, a total stranger, paid for the toll for you, and the toll booth collector just, you know, wafts you on and says, go ahead, you know, somebody already paid for you. It feels good. You know, it's really nice when you're rushing for an elevator and somebody holds the elevator for you. It feels good. It feels really nice. You know, when somebody sends a drink, uh, you know, and you pay, when, when, when uh, a waiter or a, a, a restaurant manager gives you a, a free appetizer, we say thank you. It feels good when somebody does something nice for us. It also feels nice when we do something for, some, nice for someone, when uh, we help a little old lady across the street, or if somebody drops the, uh, a book and we, we bend down and pick it up, we, we feel good. We feel good when we, when, we, when we go on the walkathon to raise money for, uh, for charity. It feels good to do things for others. And the reason is, is this chemical called oxytocin, which is trying to get us to look after each other. It feels good when others do things for us so that we'll do other things for, for others. So we'll do nice things for others. And the nice thing about that is those feelings last because that's about, those are about relationships. Where no one celebrates the goal that they hit three years ago today, you know, we've moved on because we got the hit then, we don't get it now. I can bring you to tears having you talk about the grandparent that you lost 10 years ago because the relationship is still there. And that's the point, which is the feeling of the the human relationship. Those are the feelings that last, which is why those are more closely tied to things like fulfillment, where simply winning, winning, winning doesn't last, and which is why it's unbalanced and have a system of that alone. You want to to balance across, across all the chemicals, not just some of them. What's the impact on our oxytocin levels when we witness an act of kindness? Well, that's the nice thing about oxytocin, which is to perform an act of kindness, you get a shot of oxytocin and it feels good. <laughs> to be on the receiving end of an act of kindness, it makes you feel good. And uh, as the science shows us, simply witnessing an act of generosity makes us feel good. So when you see someone else do something kind for someone, it actually makes you feel good. You smile. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see a, a movie of, of sacrifice or warmth, it makes us feel good. When they have those feel-good stories, quote-unquote, at the end of the news, 
you know, of somebody who climbed up a tree and rescued a kitten for a little girl, you know? We feel good. It makes us feel good to hear those stories because we're actually getting a shot of oxytocin when we hear about generosity and kindness and as is the chemical, uh, because the way the chemical is designed, when we have more oxytocin in our body, we actually want to do more nice things for each other. Simon spends a chapter on some of the reasons for more recent higher rates of things like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, yeah. uh, uh, other preventable diseases, much of it attributable to, to stress or, or cortisol. Yes. And to that end, you say, Simon, that, that leaders of organizations need to take some, some responsibility for how they may be contributing to this. What, what does that look like? Right, sure. So those four chemicals we talked about are incentivized, are positive incentives to get us uh, to do things in our best interest. We have another chemical called cortisol, which is the feeling responsible for stress and anxiety. Um, it's basically an early warning alarm system designed to keep us alive. Um, so when we fear something, you know, that sort of, it's that immediate sort of, it's the first, it's the first part of fight or flight, you know, that sort of tension that we get. Like you hear a bump in the night, you wake up and you go, <gasps> right? Uh, that, that's cortisol, right? There's something there, you know, find a danger. And so we go looking for the danger and we, and our muscles tense up and our, and our heart rate increases and the breathing starts to increase. And, and what's happening is the glucose is fired into the muscles. Our heart rate increases all to prepare us for fight or flight. That's what cortisol is designed to do. It's designed to keep us alive. We find out that the bump in the night was just a squirrel. We take a deep breath. We allow the cortisol to leave our bodies and we go back, we go back to bed. The problem is, is cortisol is not supposed to stay in our bodies. It's supposed to go in and leave. It makes us paranoid. It makes us tense. It increases stress. It increases, it, it makes our, our senses heightened to find the danger, find the danger. It also makes us selfish. Uh, cortisol is actually an oxytocin inhibitor, which means it actually inhibits empathy because it's only designed to keep you alive, right? Mm -hmm. So when you work, when we work in a corporate environment, when we work in an office environment, where we believe that our leaders would not keep us safe, that we believe that they would sooner sacrifice us to save the numbers, as I said before, when we feel that we are disposable commodities. We have these low levels of cortisol in our bodies, which is why we have work stress, which is why we have tension, which is, you know, all the same things, you know? Mm. Um, the problem is, is that cortisol has such adverse effects on our bodies because when we have cortisol in our bodies, it actually, uh, um, it actually turns off our immune system. So when you have a lot of cortisol in your body, it turns off your immune system because at that moment, you don't need an immune system. You just need to run away and it needs to get the energy from somewhere. It turns off growth. You don't need your fingernails to grow when you're afraid, you know? So it's not supposed to last. So when we have these low levels of cortisol in our bodies all the time, it really just wreaks havoc with our immune system. So if you look at the United States today, for example, we have some of the best hospitals in the world, some of the best doctors in the world, some of the best medicines in the world, some of the best medical training in the world, some, you know, mm. and yet cancer's on the rise, diabetes is on the rise, uh, heart disease is on the rise. It's not just because of partially hydrogenated oils. It's our jobs are literally killing us. And so leaders bear responsibility for the lives of their people inside the organization, literally, not figurative, the, the actual life of the human being. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's my assertion that good, well-led organizations that, strangely enough, are also more innovative, more productive, more profitable, the people actually live longer and have happier marriages. You know, this is, this is something that I'm exploring right now. We're actually starting to count the numbers to see if there's actually a correlation. But it makes, uh, uh, the logic is absolutely sound based on the science. 
Simon, what challenges does uh, technology, uh, specifically, you know, things like smartphones or s- social media present for today's leaders that, that yesterday's leaders didn't have to concern themselves with? The technology is a good thing, um, but like all good things, um, in moderation. You know, alcohol is not bad. Drinking to excess is bad. Gambling, there's nothing wrong with gambling, but gambling too much is bad. Um, so it's technology and specifically cell phones and social media function the same way. They're inherently good and offer huge benefits. The problem is, like alcohol, like gambling, um, every time we get a bing, a buzz, or flash, or a beep on our phones, we actually get a shot of dopamine. In other words, we get addicted. And so that feeling that we can't put our phones away, or that we have to check it as soon as we wake up, or that we walk from room to room holding our phones, or that we can't wait 10 or 15 minutes to get to wherever we're going when the phone buzzes warm in the car, all of these things, the fact that we have to put it on the table when we're out with our family or friends, you know, you're out with your friends. Who, who, who do you need to talk to? You know? The fact that we can't turn it off and put it away is because we're, we have addiction. We literally are addicted. Um, and we check it all the time. We check it all the time. If we're feeling a little bit depressed, what do we do? We send out 10 texts hoping to get one back because it makes us feel better. Mm. And so one of the problems is, is when we become addicted to anything, any, dopamine is at the root of almost all addiction. When we become addicted to our cell phones or social media, like all addiction, in time, we will waste time, we will waste resources, and we will destroy our relationship. It doesn't feel good um, when someone is on their phone all the time when we're at dinner with them. And what we usually do is pull out our own phones as a means of compensation. Right? Um, so, so what leaders have to contend with today is that we have these systems of these technologies that are are actively breaking down our ability to form good, close, trusting, cooperative relationships. I, I meet with a group of men in, as part of a, a mastermind group every Wednesday morning, and I'm going to start suggesting that when we gather to meet, that everybody puts their phone in the center of the table stacked one upon the other, and that the first person who grabs their phone has to, has to buy the meal. <laughs> well, well what the, the, the folly of these things is, is that you know, if somebody's running five minutes late, we all sit there on our phones waiting for Bob to arrive. <laughs> and the value of these meetings very often is not the actual meeting. It's the before and the after. It's, mm. the, it's the small talk. It's the catching up. This is where relationships are formed. Relationships aren't formed when we're reporting what happened that week. Relationships are formed when we're talking about things that have little bearing on the daily, on the daily activities or sharing solutions that we found that may benefit someone else. You know, it's relationships. It's trust. And so I'm actually a great believer that forget about putting them in the middle when you get going, that as soon as you walk in the room, everybody throws them off their phone and throws them in a bucket. And I don't mean waiting outside on the phone and then coming in. Like, as soon as you show up, the phone goes in the bucket. And when you're done, you don't take the phones out of the bucket. And you, when you have a break, you don't take the phone out of the bucket. I mean, think about uh, some of these conferences that we go to. Yeah. You, know, you, you, you sit and listen to the speaker for an hour, and as soon as the speaker's done and you have a half an hour break, everybody pulls out their phones. No, no, <laughs> it's the half an hour between the speakers that's the valuable part for making relationships. Leave your phone in your room in the morning and go check it in the evening. Mm. You know, oh, but what if there's an emergency? When was the last time anyone was ever called in an emergency on their phone in the middle of a conference. You know, one in a million. Um, so uh, this is, this, the value increases for us. The benefits to us are so much more exaggerated when we're willing to, 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 to use the technology when necessary, but not feel like we have to be connected to it all the time in an unhealthy way. I'm attending and speaking at a conference in August. I'm going to have to give that a try. I hadn't thought about that, but that's the perfect opportunity. Just leave it upstairs or just turn it off or just, you know, as you get better at it, you, you, it's like an alcoholic, right? Which is, 
they get rid of all of the alcohol in their house because you can't rely on your willpower. Mm. Right? It's the same thing. You can't just rely on your willpower not to check it. Just, get, just leave it there and you don't have the opportunity. And in time, you get stronger and stronger and then you can carry it on you again and you are much better at only checking it now and then. But at the start, sometimes more draconian measures, measures are necessary just to get out of the habit. In chapter six, Simon shares his uh, five leadership lessons. Uh, Simon, one question I ask all guests is, among all the leadership lessons you've come to appreciate, if you had to narrow the list down to a single theme or one central idea, what advice would you give? One leadership lesson, huh? The, the, <laughs> I think we said it before, um, um, which is a leader doesn't have to know all the answers and they don't have to pretend they do. Um, you know, it's, the, it's the willingness to admit and talk about that you don't know everything and you need help, um, but you'll commit yourself to helping others um, in, in their pursuit. Uh, it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is that. It is the absolute honesty and selflessness of leadership. Uh, public speaking is a topic that's come up again and again on the podcast, the idea that your success hinges on your ability to effectively uh, communicate your ideas in public. And, and as someone who has had a, a hugely popular uh, TED Talk, what's your approach, Simon, to public speaking? What's your goal when, when you set out to prepare a talk? Um, there's, I, I like to joke that uh, I cheat. That's why they go well. Um, <laughs> I, I only talk about things I understand, and I only talk about things I care about. Mm. Um, I cannot give you an impassioned speech about the, you know, migration patterns of African swallows. You know, I, I can't do it, you know, because I, because I don't care. Right. Um, and so I desperately care about this world that we live in. And, and I want to live in a world where I feel inspired and fulfilled and safe amongst the people with whom I work. Um, I desperately care about it. So when I talk about it, the passion comes out. And this is not unique to me. It's not that I am a passionate person. You know, we're all passionate for things. You know, you talk to a parent and they can tell you story after story and story after story about their kids. You go on in passion for ages of <laughs> how great they are. And, you know, every parent, their kid is the smartest one in the class. You know, I've never had anybody say that my, my kid's just not learning the alphabet where all the other kids are, you know. So um, the point is, is that we all have passion for things and the opportunity to talk about those things. That's number one. The other thing is the perspective. Um, whenever I give a talk, no matter the audience, big or small, whether it's a meeting or a, a, a large, a large stage, um, I show up to give. In other words, I have no expectations. I don't want to get anything back. I don't show up to sell a book. I don't show up to get a client. I don't show up to get an, a, a follower on Twitter. I show up to give. I have a perspective. I have a, and I want to share it. And that's it. And it's and it's that mentality as a speaker. Um, it's like, for example, we've all had the experience where you've gone into a store and you can tell immediately if someone is commission-based or not, <laughs> right? We can kind of sense that they're, so, even if they're being nice and helpful, we can kind of sense that they're not really doing it to be nice and helpful. They're doing it because there's some benefit that they will derive if we make the sale, if they make the sale. It's the same idea. Human beings are highly, highly sensitive social animals, and we can tell if someone's uh, a taker or a giver, a selflessly or selflessly motivated. And so we have to remind ourselves, show up to give, show up to give. Mm. And it comes across. And it makes you a much more objective and impassioned presenter in any size forum. Well, Simon, in that this is the Read to Lead podcast, and we espouse uh, the importance of reading, uh, intentional and consistent reading, and its role in uh, success in business and in life, I was wondering if you could name for us a couple of books that you've read or are currently reading that have had an impact on you and share maybe how or, or why they impacted you as they did? 
Uh, sure. Um, one of them is um, uh, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. Um, little book, really special book. Um, for those who don't know Victor Frankl's work, he was a Holocaust survivor. It is not a Holocaust account. Uh, and one of the things he couldn't understand while he was at Auschwitz is how all of these people who were suffering the same horror, why some had the will to live and some didn't. And one of his conclusions is we cannot control the circumstances around us. All we can control is our attitude. And it really is a, a remarkable um, thesis for all of us, not only to manage our, our work, but to live our lives. Um, another favorite one is um, David Marquet's book, Turn the Ship Around. Mm-hmm. Um, which I adore. Um, David takes my work and makes it very, very actionable, um, which I'm a huge fan of. <laughs> and I just love his, his story of learning to trust, learning to trust others. Um, there's uh, uh, another book, and I always, I always um, get the title wrong, but it's, it's, uh, it's 1727, I think. So, no, no, I mean, 1527, something like that. Mm-hmm. 1427. It's, it's 1427, something like that. It was basically about how the Chinese discovered America uh, 50 years before Columbus. Mm. So 1492 is when Columbus was minus 50-ish. <laughs> that's, that's, the title, that's, that's the title of the book. Um, I just love books that present um, completely alternative perspectives on, on my understanding of the world and how the world works. Well, Leaders Eat Last has been out for a few months now, but I'm curious to know uh, what's next for you. What projects are you working on, uh, Simon, that you're excited about? We're currently building a, an MBA program from the ground up, a fully accredited MBA program. Mm. What we understand is that there's a distinct lack of leadership in our, in our politics and in our business today. And instead of whining about it, um, we're trying to do something about it. Um, um, I, I don't believe that the current MBA system is, is creating a, a solid bench. Uh, very often they teach that people are resources to be managed, not humans to be led. Um, and so we're uh, teamed up with a, an amazing uh, businessman, a man by the name of Bob Chapman, who I wrote about, and uh, a remarkable Marine who used to be in charge of all Marine Corps training. And we are figuring out how to actually build an MBA that would teach leadership as leadership exists, as it should be taught, um, in an attempt to help, help build the bench. Um, so pretty engaged in that, um, and uh, and always sort of uh, trying to get involved and in, in helping out in uh, in government and politics where I can for the same reason. Mm. Uh, more information on the MBA program would that be at startwithwhy.com? Um, we're still we're still in the early stages. Okay, um, but okay. as 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 we start to make progress, and we're going to probably start off with a small executive program gotcha. uh, to test out some of our theories. Um, um, we'll definitely make announcements on, on my website and Facebook page and Twitter and all that good stuff. Well, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, one of my goals early on was to have you on the show. Uh, and Simon, it has been a true pleasure uh, to have you as a guest. I really appreciate your time and just want to say thank you for being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for giving me a forum to, help, uh, to share my ideas. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to network with Simon, one of the best ways you can do that is on Twitter. And he's easy to find. He's Simon Sinek on Twitter. That's at Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K. And the Read to Lead podcast makes a great conversation starter. Now, everything you want to know about Simon and his new book and everything else we talked about today, including other resources, books, and links, you can find all that at the page created especially for this episode, and that's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 043 for episode 43. 
Remember that great deal you can get from Blinkist? 20% off an annual subscription when you use the code READ to LEAD. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist to take advantage of this limited time offer right now. If you've yet to rate the podcast, and especially if you enjoy it, I hope you'll do that soon, it helps keep it visible and helps new people to find it more easily. If you give it a five-star rating and leave a review, I'll be sure to mention you by name in an upcoming episode as a small way to say thanks. Now, to rate and review the podcast, you got a couple of choices. Visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Come along, my lonely days are over, and life is like a song Oh yeah.